The reading tonight is taken from John chapter 13, which can be found on page 1081 of the Church Bibles. John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own, whom were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. 
What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Great. Well, good evening. Um, my name's Stuart, and I'm um, uh, really looking forward to looking at this passage together. It's such a great passage, isn't it? Shall we pray before we get going? Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing record of supper with your disciples. And as we look towards Easter, and as we unpack your word together this evening, pray that you would strengthen me and you'd meet with each one of us. You'd say to each one of us what you want to say tonight. Amen. Great. Okay, well, um, I have uh, called the first, and I will admit, major part of this talk, uh, it's pretty much a one-point talk, um, simply this, Behold the Master who Serves. Behold the master who serves. And there isn't, uh, well, really right till the end, going to be very much application at all. <laughs> I'll just tell you that up front. But what I want, hopefully, if, will you come with me? I, I just want us to look afresh and marvel afresh at Jesus and his humility. And just kind of just stew in it, just kind of rest in it, uh, that we maybe might worship more. And then we'll look at how we can apply it at the end. You're up for that? I hope you're up for that. That's what we're going to do. Great. So some of us might know this story. Some of us might not. Um, but um, when we read this story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, I don't know about you, but I, I, I find it quite hard to recapture some of the scandal and outrage that obviously uh, this, in, this event evoked in the disciples. I mean, they obviously were like, what's going on? Peter, you know, you'll never wash my feet. You know, there's something going on there. They're really outraged at this. But I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I, I read this, I was reading this the first time, I was thinking, my honest thought was more like, well, obviously Jesus washes their feet. Like, this is Jesus we're talking about. Of course he comes and, you know, he's kind, he's gentle. You know, he, of course he washes the disciples' feet. And um, I don't know whether you connect with me on that. You know, how do we re recover some of how the original disciples must have um, uh, seen this original event? And I think we can go in two directions, uh, up and down, to try and, uh, and kind of capture some of what's going on here. First of all, we can go down. Maybe one reason that we uh, don't immediately kind of gasp when we read this story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, is that um, we don't quite grasp how degrading, how humiliating this task uh, of washing, of foot washing actually was. And I was trying to think of an activity that might be akin to this today. It was quite hard. I, the closest I got was to remove the gunk and, you know, like hair out of the bottom of the shower plug. You know, like, you have to do 
once a month, or maybe you do it more often, hopefully. You know, it's just like, it's just a horrible, disgusting job. It's the kind of job you'd never give to a friend to do for you. You certainly wouldn't give to your boss to do for you, right? I don't know, that's as close as I got. Um, uh, maybe, maybe it's that we can't quite grasp how horrible this is, what a taboo it was. But actually, um, I'm not sure whether going downwards is going to really help us too much, because I think that with a little bit of imagination, we can begin to think of examples about what it must have been like to do such a menial task and to get down and and wash his uh, disciples' feet. I think we, we can begin to understand it. Now, I think the real challenge for us is in the other direction. I'd like to suggest to us that the real challenge for us is in grasping how great the person is who's doing this. How incredible the person is who's washing the disciples' feet. You know, as I've been thinking about it, I think that humility is the space between the greatness of the person doing the task and the status of the task that they're taking on. It's the space, it's the distance between who it is who's doing this and what it is they're doing. And I think that we will get a lot more if we think a bit about who it is who's doing this task. I had a couple of stories just to illustrate this idea. First of all, um, Lois Benyon, uh, Ollie's uh, wife, was telling me over dinner the other day uh, about uh, when a couple of years ago, the family went to visit Jamie Oliver's restaurant here in Cambridge. uh, And uh, they'd been before and enjoyed themselves. And so they were going back. And when they arrived, their table was apparently really delayed. And so they, uh, they were shown to the bar area to wait for, uh, for a bit, you know, you know, kind of sort of holding, holding bay. Um, and while they were there to entertain the girls and to kind of, kind of pass time, they ordered some nibbles, as you do. Great. Then their table became free, and this waitress came and showed them over to their, to their proper table. And while they were being shown over, Lois noticed that the waitress was, you know, a, a bit unsettled. So she asked her, she said, are you okay? Everything okay? And she said, well, actually, we are okay now, but we were really all a bit stressed, you know, a few moments ago because the boss was in. And, and Lois was like, well, do you mean Jamie Oliver? She was like, yes, Jamie Oliver was in the restaurant. And then she said to, to, to Lois, didn't you realize you were actually sat right next to him in the bar area, right next to him? At which point Lois's heart sank because she realized that uh, while they'd been eating their nibbles, uh, Jamie Oliver, she now realized, and his partner had, been, uh, had also ordered some food. And Lois had casually turned to Jamie and said, oh, I've had those before. They're not very good. I wouldn't bother ordering them. <laughs> Completely oblivious. But Jamie Oliver apparently just smiled, said something nice, and carried on. And actually, Lois didn't even realize until afterwards. <laughs> now, now, just think about it. She didn't realize. Why did she not realize? Why was that an unremarkable, seemingly unremarkable response? Well, if you spoke to any other customer or any other Joe in the, in the restaurant and, and said, oh, I wouldn't get that, you know, get this, then you would, you know, you just, oh, thank you, that's any other. Why does it strike us as an act of humility? It's because it's Jamie Oliver world-famous chef, owner of the restaurant and the chain, by the way, 
And he just smiled and moved on. Think of what he could have done, what the embarrassment that could have been caused. It strikes me as humble. Another, another um, example. Uh, many years ago, uh, when I was a student here, and uh, I used to play uh, rugby for my college, Selwyn, and um, one year, it was coming up to the end of the season, and coming up to the end of season knockout tournament we call Cuppers, and um, uh, as, as, as always happens at that time of year, there are these ringers that just turn up out of nowhere. They haven't played all season. Now they want to come and play. So we were at one of our training sessions in the middle of uh, Cuppers, and this new guy rocks up. He's doing a post-grad, and he wants to come and join. So that's rather unexceptional, except he was exceptional in that he was six foot five. Li- literally, I looked it up. Six foot five and 105 kilograms. He'd played, he'd played for Waratah, Waratah's super rugby team and uh, Australia under-21s. This guy knew rugby, right? Okay. And just to put this in context, uh, probably, I think about three members of our team had not played rugby until that year and probably still did not fully understand most of the rules because in rugby, you only need to know half of them to play. But, so you can imagine what we were thinking. First of all, we were thinking, Awesome. Second of all, we're thinking, how are we going to include this guy in our team? Well, this is ridiculous. And I was thinking, because I was scrum half, I was thinking, how am I going to show this guy our moves, our forwards and back moves? I mean, it's going to be a joke, isn't it? But this guy was absolutely incredible. He was so gentle. You know, uh, he smiled as we all all did our ridiculous warm-ups. You know, they're like, is this what you do for Australia? You know, you know, kind of thing. And then, um, and then uh, he chatted quietly, you know, while I showed him all the, all the moves for the forwards. And he sort of nodded as if he'd heard it for the first time ever. Yeah? So you just go to the right. That's it. That's all. That's all you need. You're 105 kilograms. It'll be fine. And then uh, he, just, he just chatted happily. He was happy with us dropping the ball all the way through training. He just smiled. And when it came to the game, we got to the shield that, that year, he just... He was so gentle. He didn't score. He refused to score. He, no one could have stopped him if he'd wanted to. But he just, made, he just encouraged everyone. He made space for everyone. He passed the ball out. It was just incredible. At the end of the season, all the guys on the team, all they could say about him, he was just so humble. He's so humble. Now, again, you know, some of you might know him, actually, by the way. His name's Marty Wilson. He came to HT for a short while. Now he's a missionary in Papua New Guinea, so that... <laughs> There's obviously some God in his life, uh, which is why he came to join us. But what, you know, what's my point with these two stories? It's not that their actions were in and of themselves remarkable. It's when you realize who was doing them, what they could have done, what they could have demanded, who they were, that you, you begin to see enormous humility. And I think, I think, that to understand what's going on in this situation, yes, we should look at, wow, what a, you know, a humble task Jesus did here in washing his disciples' feet. But also we have to look up and we have to ask, who is this? Because if you're anything like me, when I read this story, I kind of have my modern contemporary lenses on and I kind of just read Jesus basically washing everyone's feet saying, hey guys, we're all the same here. We're all equals here. You know, come on, let's just serve each other. That's, but that is not what he's doing. That is not what he's doing. In fact, he says to them, doesn't he? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. He's not coy about being king. He's just entered in Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, the whole city declaring him the Messiah. Here's the scandal in this story. Here's the outrage. It's as their master, it's as their Messiah that he gets down on his knees and washes their feet like a slave. You see the space between who he is and what he did? And if we kind of read this story a second time over, we see that this act of humble service uh, at supper was not just a, a random act of kindness. Oh, guys, your feet are a little bit dirty. I'll just do that. Um, no, Jesus is being very intentional. He's using it, in fact, as a teaching tool, as a, as a parable, and he's trying to make a bigger point. How do we know that? Well, there's a few ways we see that. First of all, Jesus pretty much tells us that in verse 7. He says to us, uh, he says to the disciples, you do not know, you do not now realize, uh, sorry, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. In other words, guys, there is something more than meets the eye going on here, right? You're going to have to think, you're going to think about this later, you're going to realize what I was saying. Also, when we get down to that slightly odd conversation, verses 10 and 11, between Peter and Jesus, where it goes a bit weird, um, if we kind of read that over, it, it seems that He's talking about foot washing as if it symbolizes something deeper, a deeper spiritual washing. So this is a symbol of that. That's the only way we can make sense of the fact that we're told that, well, Judas wasn't clean. And then finally, also, it's about where this is in the story. Uh, John tells us, verse 1 of this chapter, that this is his version of the Last Supper. And this, this uh, in, in all the other Gospels, there's the Last Supper. And, and in all of the other Gospels, Jesus, this is the place, this is the time. Jesus slows down with his 12 disciples and he explains to them what his ministry and particularly his upcoming death is all about. And it's like, it's like John has swapped out. He's like, you guys, you've heard that one. <laughs> Let me tell you another way of looking at this. And he uses Jesus' washing of the feet. Jesus' washing his disciples' feet is an acted parable, a picture to help us understand what uh, his whole life, his whole ministry, and especially his upcoming death is really about. And I want us to sort of come back over this all again, this, this story, and just, again, just to dwell here a little bit. And think about it, because there's so much here. And I particularly want to pick up on verse 3. Do you want to look at verse 3 quickly with me, if you, um, if you have it open there? Because when you unpack it, there's just, it's absolutely extraordinary. Three things that John tells us Jesus knew. Three things. First of all, Jesus knew his authority. It says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his feet. The Father put all things under his feet. Just think about what that means for a moment. A little bit of trivia. In my world, this is trivia. Um, this is fun. Uh, a little doctrine that's called the, uh, there's a little doctrine called the extra Calvinisticum, which I like to remember using the helpful phrase, supercalifragilistic extra Calvinisticum. So, 
It's called the Extra Covenant, Kim. And it comes from the first chapter of Hebrews and the first chapter of Colossians, some material there. That's where it's derived from. And it says this. It says that at the very same time as Jesus was doing all the normal things of human life, at the very same time he was chopping wood in his carpentry, at the very same time he was eating dinner, at the very same time that he was sailing across the lake, all those things that we know and love about Jesus, at the very same time he was doing that, he was sustaining the universe. At the same time as he was walking around, talking with his friends, he was holding the universe in existence. Isn't that cool to think about? Jesus knew that everything had been put under his feet. Number two, second thing he knew. Jesus knew that he had come from God. He knew who he was. At the beginning of John's gospel, he he starts by saying that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And, And even here, look at verse 19 with me. He says, Look, I'm telling you all of this, I'm telling you all now, so that you believe that I am he. Literally, that I am who I am. Sitting around the table with these disciples is Yahweh, the living God. He's chatting with them, he's eating dinner with them. He's just washed their feet. He knew who he was. And then third, he knew that he was returning to God. He knew his future. You know, he was trying to explain it. No one else around the table knew, but he knew of his upcoming death. He also knew about his resurrection. He also knew of the untold glory and power that he would have at his father's right hand. He also knew that he would be returning to claim the earth, coming in glory and power. He knew these three things. Everything was under his feet that he was from God and that he was returning to God. And so he got down and washed their feet. In that light of who he is, now just have a think about Jesus' life, his whole ministry. Think about these little things. Think about what it must have been like to be overlooked. Jesus spent 30 years of his life in a carpenter's shop. You know? Make, you know, the creator of earth was making chair leg, uh, table, you know, chair legs and repairing doors and things like that. People walked past him every single day. No one had a clue who he was except his mom and some magi who'd left a while ago were still scratching their head over it. And he was fine with that. And then think about, I think about what it must have been like to be misunderstood. You know, this is, this is the word, as, as John likes to call him. He is truth incarnate, the principle through which the universe was made. And when he does start teaching, there's the people at the back going, what do you think? Oh, I'm not really sure. He's a bit confusing, isn't he? Yeah, I think he's a little bit. Woo-hoo. And he was okay with that. And then think about being mocked and maligned. You know, when he did start getting traction, just the things that people said about him. No, he's a false prophet. No, he, he, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's taking everyone for a ride. He's a fake. And then when finally they couldn't deny he was doing things, no, he must be working for the other side. He's a servant of Satan. That's how he must be doing what he's doing. And 
being mistreated. He, he got chased out of towns, uh, spat at. They nearly threw him over a, a cliff, whipped, beaten. This is the God of the universe. Now, if, if any of those things happened to anyone else, we'd be thinking, well, it's a shame. It's when we get who he is that we realize what's happening. And the last of course, we have to, thing, of course, we have to remember is his death. And that's where this is all heading towards. And this is what he's talking about here as well. And we have to realize that even if we take it at a very human level, it's good to remember that Jesus' death was not inevitable in the sense that it didn't just happen to him. He had a choice about it. We read in our passage, don't we, that he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Just think about the temptation there, right? Okay, it would be so easy. You know, he's obviously sitting relatively close to Judas because he can, you know, share bread with him. So imagine we could have been like, Judas, uh, just have a look over there. Knock on the head, drag him behind the couch, elect another disciple. It's all fine. Move on. Or, or imagine if that conversation had just gone a little bit further amongst the disciples. So it's just like, hey, rest of the disciples. Hey, Judas, uh, Simon the Zealot, you know, freedom fighter guy who's probably killed some people already. Just had a bit of a Holy Spirit moment. This guy's going to betray me. Just thought I'd leave that information with you and see what happens. <laughs> Even in a human sense, this would have been so easy. He chose to allow Judas to walk out of that room. But that's before we've considered that he is the author of life. You know, in John 10, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And I genuinely believe, I seriously believe, that if Jesus hadn't given up his spirit on the cross, that no one could have taken it from him. That whatever they'd done to try and extract it from him, they could not have taken his life from him. I believe that. But he became obedient to death, we're told in Philippians Obedient to death for us. It's an act of humility. His whole ministry, from cradle to grave, was the king and the master of the universe taking his clothes off, his outer clothing off, wrapping a towel around himself, coming to us and washing our feet like a slave. That's what he's telling us. That is amazing. That is outrageous. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, we worship. And I mean that. You know, I have just worshipped a lot preparing this talk. I hope it will help us worship. But also, um, how do we respond? A couple of things. I think lots of us will want to jump to, right, well, we need to be like this. We need to go and serve. And that is true. But there is a step before that that we mustn't miss. And it's this. First of all, our first response needs to be, we need to be willing to let Jesus serve us. We need to be willing to let Jesus wash our feet. And this isn't, I think, it isn't as easy as, we, as it first sounds. Because just like Peter, we don't like being served bit of a clarification. We love being served as long as uh, we think that it's owed to us or we've paid someone to do it 
or we're in control of it, or, you know, we think, just, you know, as long as it's on our terms and we think it's owed to us, fine. But being genuinely served, maybe by uh, someone who owes us nothing, maybe by someone we really respect, you know, if they were to go out of their way to help us in a way that put us in their debt, I think we'll find we don't like to be served when it comes to that. And on Tuesday night, uh, we had testimonies at our student night, which were absolutely wonderful. And one of the students who's just become a Christian a couple of weeks ago, which is very exciting, shared as part of her story. And I think this is a common, a common thing that I've heard. She said uh, from the front, one of the things she struggled with was this. I found it hard. I found it really hard to accept that Jesus died for me. I didn't like the idea that someone had to die for me or that I needed dying for. And we, like Peter, would, would so often much rather prove ourselves worthy of following Jesus by standing on our own two feet, washing our own feet, um, being good disciples, earning it. You know, Peter says, I, w- I won't betray you. I'll follow you to the end. And so with Peter, we often say, uh, you know, we often find ourselves saying in one way or another, surely it's below Jesus' dignity to wash my feet. But actually, you know what we really mean most of the time? It's below my dignity to let him wash my feet. I don't want to be served. And when we go to the bottom of that, we often find, I find at the bottom of my heart, is I don't want God's help. I want his respect. But that's not how it works. We've got to get over ourselves. Jesus came in the form of a slave, to die for us because we needed it. We need his service. We need his help, and we need his life for ours. And there's no serving Jesus until we've accepted his service of us. In reply, Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. We cannot escape that both from the beginning and for the rest of our lives, We will always be in Jesus' debt. He will always be the one who's done more for us than we can do for him. We always need his condescension, his grace, his humility. We have to humble ourselves and accept that he has done this for us and we needed his help. And we need it again today and tomorrow and the next day. Simple question. Have you accepted what Jesus has done for you? How good are you at letting Jesus serve you? Because he came to serve you and he came to serve me. And then finally, 30 seconds. Yes, we do have to serve one another. Jesus makes that so clear. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And I think that The reason we have to let Jesus wash us and serve us first is because it transforms our serving of other people. Because there is a way of serving, and I think it's very often the world's way, um, that can be a kind of exercise of power over other people. The need to be needed. The need to show other people that we can help them. The need to, it's like an inverted 
in inverted pride. But when we have allowed Jesus to serve us first, it just cuts that from underneath our feet. We're the ones who have been washed. We're the ones who've been cleaned. We're the ones he has served. And he just says, go and do that for other people. Freely you've received, now freely give. And it just sets us free. We serve the master who serves. There's no, what did he, he is, there's no one higher. We're told there's no one higher than this master. And this is what he did with his power. This is what he did with his dignity. This is what he did with his life. And he did it, he's done it for us. And now we must do it for others. Should we pray? And then we're going to respond by just singing together and spending some time meditating on this. Lord Jesus, your love is extraordinary and your humility is, it's just baffling and wonderful. And we pray that as we approach this Easter time again, you would humble us with your humility. Lord, we're so grateful for all that you did for us, that you didn't use what you had to your own advantage, that you came obedient to death and suffering and other things for us. Help us to accept what you've done for us and live out of it. We love you, Lord. Amen.